My name is Steve Kersey. I'm a journalist, and it's been more than a decade that I've been living without a cell phone. You heard that right. Stephen Kersey has been living without a cell phone for about 12 years. This choice led Stephen to discover a surprising place where he was not alone. And we will take you there, but first we have to go back to 2009, when Stephen was living in Cambodia. I was working for a newspaper there called the Cambodia Daily. And I can remember going to sleep with this old flip phone, checking it through the night, you know, dreading that call or text from my editor saying, you know, Stephen, what the hell does this mean in your article? So when I left Cambodia, I, I just threw the device away. When I got back to the United States, like I found myself all of a sudden surrounded by people with smartphones. And I was just a struggling journalist. I, I didn't want to pay for all that. So I was like, oh, I'll just put it off. What has it been like over the last decade in a world where everything has become increasingly dominated by smartphones? You know, people are often, they, they, they tease me about it and they're annoyed about it. It's like, well, you know, text me when you arrive at whatever we're going for a hike or rock climbing and I'll let you know where I am. I have to say, well, I don't have a cell phone, so can we just say a time and a place where we're going to meet? Just like we used to the old fashioned way. But people don't want to do that anymore. I've had numerous bosses say to me, just get a cell phone, Steve. Why are you being such a pain in the ass for us? I say, no, that's not the way I want to live my life. It was around 2016, 2017, that I just did an internet search, perhaps ironically for places without cell service, thinking maybe this is the place where I will find my people. And the first thing that pops up was Greenbank, West Virginia, the quietest town in America, where cell service is essentially outlawed. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And I hope you downloaded today's episode, because we are about to go offline to Greenbank, West Virginia, the quietest town in America. After this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Greenbank is a very small town. It's not even an official town. It's like a, it's an undesignated, you know, 
place in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia. This is Stephen Kersey again, the journalist who got rid of his cell phone. And he first headed to Greenbank, West Virginia back in 2017, a town which proudly bills itself as the quietest town in America. He actually wrote a book about it called The Quiet Zone. There's a very specific reason why The Quiet Zone is found in Greenbank, West Virginia. It's the home of our country's very first radio astronomy observatory, Federal Radio Astronomy Observatory. That's like a giant telescope, but like not for looking, for kind of listening to invisible radio signals. Exactly. I mean, optical astronomy looks at light waves coming in from the far reaches of space. Radio astronomy measures those radio signals that are bouncing in from the far reaches of space. All kinds of really interesting scientific research happens at the Radio Observatory in Green Bank. There are radio signals that are helping us decipher the age of the universe. There are radio signals that give us more local information, like the time Green Bank scientists discovered the black hole at the center of the Milky Way based on its radio signals. There is the time they discovered the existence of a pulsar at the center of the Crab Nebula, this kind of giant lighthouse of radio signals that happens after a star explodes and collapses in on itself. So at Green Bank, they are looking for these energetic radio signals, signals that might tell us about planets and black holes, but they're also listening for signals that might be messages. This other curious aspect of the science that you there has to do with extraterrestrial intelligence. So the world's very first official search for ET happened there in Green Bank in 1959 by this famous astronomer named Frank Drake. He used one of those telescopes, one of the very first telescopes there, to just point it up at the sky and say, if ET is out there, I want to pick up the signal. And within minutes, actually, on that very first day of observing, he picked up a signal that looked a lot like extraterrestrial intelligence. It turned out to be aircraft radar, possibly like military uh, related, but still like that initial excitement has kept on through the decades. And in order to do this, in order to really listen to the universe, to pick up radio waves from 14 million light years away from Earth, the Green Bank Telescope needs to operate under one very specific condition. Just like you got to put an optical telescope in a really dark place where you don't have light pollution, you got to put radio telescopes or radio astronomy observatory in a really radio quiet place. And back in the late 50s, Green Bank was deemed to be like perhaps the quietest place in the eastern United States. It's it's remote, there's no highways. It's like 8,000 people spread out over a Rhode Island-sized county. And it's surrounded by a ring of mountains that are up to 5,000 feet. So it's like naturally quiet. And then it was it was kept quiet by the passage of this federal statute called the National Radio Quiet Zone. Yeah, it's not just quiet. It's quiet by law. The National Radio Quiet Zone encompasses not just Green Bank, but 13,000 square miles of the surrounding area. And there are rules for the people who live there. If you want to install any kind of radio technology... It has to go through like the quiet zone administrator first, and she gives like a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Back in the day, that mostly meant things like a car radio antenna, a TV antenna, or even something like an electric fence around a farm or a microwave in your kitchen. These things had to get approval 
And then you had to make sure that they were working properly. They weren't leaking electromagnetic waves into the environment. And there was a guy who would go around enforcing this in kind of the friendliest way possible. And so there was actually a guy at the observatory known as Cookley as like the quiet zone cop. And he has like a big van or truck that he drives around in and it picks up these illegal signals. And if he picks it up, he'll, he would go up to your house and say, hey, I think your electric fence is malfunctioning or I think your TV or your radio is malfunctioning. Can I fix it for you? This was how it was for decades. But then when you had the problem of Wi-Fi or cell service or cell phones, which are purposely emitting signals and which these people want to have, it became more of a difficult problem with people starting to hide their Wi-Fi or people starting to just say to the observatory, no, I don't care what you say. Stephen says that today's rules against Wi-Fi are enforced through passive monitoring. You know, if you were going to run like an internet cafe, someone would stop by and you'd have a conversation about why these rules are important. But in practice, it means that these things slip under the radar or under the radio telescope, I should say. I actually went around town with the quiet zone cop and we picked up like 200 Wi-Fi signals within like a two mile radius of the observatory. It's like more Wi-Fi signals than houses. There's that much Wi-Fi. So you start getting hints of how things aren't quite so silent. In his research, Stephen also dug into the unusual history of the Green Bank area. It's like the Bermuda Triangle of Appalachia. That's how it felt like. And in his book, he talks about how the remote nature of the Green Bank area made it an attractive place for all kinds of groups. In the 1950s, the government set up a big nuclear emergency bunker not very far away, and the Department of Defense set up more radio telescopes nearby. Although this time, not for science but for the NSA. It's been called the largest eavesdropping bug of the U.S. military. Green Bank attracted hippies looking to get off the grid and even neo-Nazis looking to escape from modern society. For the neo-Nazis, you know, that's minorities, that's liberal groups, that's people who might try and clamp down on their fringe philosophy, on their fringe ideas. And more recently, there has been an influx of a new group, the electrosensitives. So this is a a condition that many people in the United States and around the world believe they had. It's called electromagnetic hypersensitivity. Hundreds of these people have actually moved to the Green Bank area. This is a town of only a couple hundred people. So when you have 200 electrosensitives coming in, they're going to start changing the community and becoming a, a vocal group in the community too, asking for certain changes to be made. Yeah, and I can see how that would would cause some friction because you've got people there who, you know, maybe their parents grew up in the area, there's generational ties, and they just want to, like, microwave their burrito. And then you've got a bunch of people who've just moved in over the last 10 years or whatever saying, no, you can't do that. You have to live in, the, in a certain way. Has that has there been friction between those groups? Absolutely, yeah. Um, to give you an example, there was a senior citizen center in the town, and there was a, one of the first electrosensitives, her name was Diane, to move there. She became a a member quickly of the, uh, of the senior citizen center, and she started asking for special things to accommodate her illness, like for the lights to be turned off in one area where she sat so that she wouldn't be affected by them. Um, and she started asking for the community center to change its light bulbs. She asked for it to keep its Wi-Fi off. 
And then one time, she felt that she was getting interference, personal pain, from the electric pump that was installed on the fish tank. And so she unplugged it. And when everybody came back, you know, after the long weekend, the fish were floating upside down, dead, because the pump had been turned off. Little things like this, you know, started bubbling up, and it led to a large confrontation in the community where the sheriff of the county was actually called in to kind of, like, defuse the tensions between the electrosensitives and the locals, with the locals saying, you can't just come here and start telling us, us old hillbillies, how to live our lives, you city slickers. It's a challenging thing in the schools, too. Like, there are electrosensitives who don't want their kids to be in schools that have Wi-Fi, and some of these schools have Wi-Fi. You know, there's for the same expectations that I came into the area with, expecting it to be quiet, electrosensitives are moving and flocking to the quiet zone, to Green Bank, expecting it to be really quiet. And so when they realize it's something different, they have the same kind of shock as I did when I got there. Uh, you know, ignoring the science about whether being electrosensitive like exists or not, like, it, I mean, it seems like people are sort of allergic to like the modern world in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a place where you can get away from the modern world. Yeah, there's there's two sides to that, right? There is a lot of research and benefits to breaking away from our technology, right? Like people are getting into more car accidents, people have a harder time sleeping, people can't focus in conversation, people, you know, have a harder time going out. Like there's good reason to be skeptical of that, which draws us to a place like Green Bank and the Quiet Zone. There's also, you know, the flip side of that, which is when when you go so deep into the cave, you get lost and you can't find your way out. Like there's an element of that here too. I resisted getting a smartphone for a very long time. I didn't want to be checking my phone all the time. I didn't want to be inundated with texts and demands on my time and and just constant information. Of course, I did eventually get one for work. And of course, now I am entirely addicted. I am tethered to it. It is my world. Uh, I don't want to hide my head under a rock or go entirely into that cave, as Stephen says. But it it also feels like There's not much of an in-between these days. You are either all in or all out. The middle ground is a tough place to live. Do you feel like disconnecting, like truly disconnecting, is, is really even possible anymore? I think the true quiet or absolute quiet, I think it's still attainable, you know, in some degree, but you really gotta want it. There's an acoustic biologist named Gordon Hempton, who's, I think he's, he's determined that there's like 12, 12 places left in the United States that are still audibly quiet for like more than 30 minutes or like an hour at a time. It's like, it's like not even permanently audibly quiet. It's just like, can you go there for a certain amount of time and get some quiet? So it's shrinking more and more, which just means that it's more and more valuable this quiet, this audible and this radio quiet. And I think that's going to let us, you know, recognize it more and to want to preserve it more. It'd be impossible to try and create a new quiet zone to say, we're going to take your cell service away. You can only protect what we still have. May we all find our own personal quiet zones in this noisy world of ours. Stephen Kersey's book is The Quiet Zone, unraveling the mystery of a town suspended in silence.
Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was produced by Amanda McGowan. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was sound designed and mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Women Who Travel is a transported podcast for anyone curious about the world. We talk to adventurers and athletes. I've raced the God's Own Adventure Race, which is on the South Island and goes through the mountains down in the Southern Alps on New Zealand. That was eight days spent out in the wilderness. And chefs. Iranian food is home, it's family, it's love. And we share dispatches from our listeners. Ireland is full of these, I will call them ghosts of the past. From stampeding elephants to training sled dogs. We hear it all. The dogs will curl right up with you and it can be kind of cozy waiting things out. New episodes of Women Who Travel publish every Thursday. Join us wherever you listen. Listen.